Hey, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Redemption North Mountain. Welcome to our new location, our new time, 10 a.m. here at 7th Street and Thunderbird. This is exciting for us, mostly because the chairs are finally comfortable. So those of you that have been with us in the past, they were the worst chairs in the world. They were made by Osama bin Laden. I'm sure they were terrible. These are nice, real nice. So you're welcome. Thank you, Citizens Church. So I... I like to teach the Bible. Obviously, this is what I get to do with my life. Um, And I'm just struck that we get to enter a new book that most of us probably haven't studied uh, in depth much. And it makes me think of my mom. Um, Over the holidays, my mom pulled me and my sisters aside, and she's, my mom's very quirky, very, very quirky. She's like, hey, I got to tell you guys some stuff. And she walks us into her bedroom, and she starts to show us where she has all this stuff stashed. So when she dies, we got to remember where the $465 is and where her random knickknacks and her old porcelain dolls and just all she's like, and right, she pulls the top drawer and she's got like $1,000 stuck there. It's just like the most random, me and Julie and Jessica are like, what are you doing, mom? Like, this is insane. There's a way better way to pass on stuff to your kids. But as I reflect, I'm going to love going and finding that stuff because it's going to make me stop and remember the quirkiness of my mom. And you only get so many of those reminders when people are gone. And the Bible is God's gift to us as his children. And he's given us 66 books within this Bible to remember him by. So we have a finite number of books to go into to reflect on and to turn our attention back towards God. And not that this is finite in its power. You can scan this for eternity and you'll never... pack everything, but we have 66 books only in this book that we hold so dear that we stand to read to honor here as a church, and we get to open a new one here this morning. It's just a gift because it's going to show us a new facet of God. It's going to bring us into a story in a way we've never been brought in, and it's going to impact us as a church. So this is what we're doing. Nehemiah, for the next couple months, I want to just show you the schedule. So you can see it's June, July, and then start of August. That's we're going to kind of take it chapter at a time or sometimes two chapters. The prayer, the project, the opposition. We're very creative in our naming of titles. The poor, the adversary, the covenant, the confession, the dedication, and the failure. Because Nehemiah ends very poorly. Because all of life ends very poorly if Jesus isn't there yet. That's why Nehemiah ends poorly. So that's where we get to study. We get to dive in to the book of Nehemiah. One of 66 books. And Joe kicked us off well with a lot of prayer, and I actually want to do that again. I want us to stop and just quietly in your own heart, thank God for his word, this gift that he's given us to know him by. So just bow your heads, close your eyes, and however you need to, thank God right now for his word. Father, thank you for these chapters in this greater book that tells us this great story that you're telling about a good, gracious, great God and man who had all this potential and chose to rebel and this good, gracious, great God who comes after us time and time and time again and he wins and he captures us through the person of Jesus, and one day we get to live with him forever. And God, we only know that because of this book here. Anything worth knowing in life can be found in here. So God, we as a church never want to take it for granted that we want to be people of the book, 
people who sit under the authority of your word. So help us to do that yet again this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. So Nehemiah, why study? Here's the question. Why study the book of Nehemiah? Why is it important for the church that we dive into Nehemiah? Just raise your hands. How many of you guys are very comfortable with Nehemiah? Like it's, you could write a dissertation on it. Hands up. A master's thesis. You could write a paper on Nehemiah. You could write a blog on Nehemiah. Jimmy Curley, you better put your hand up. You have a master's in Bible stuff. You better put at least a little bit of a hand up. One guy in the back can do this. The rest of us are like, ah, Nehemiah. Here's why it's important. As you think about the people of God, their story, here's how it starts. Moses gets them out of slavery. And then Joshua is kind of on the, Moses gets them out in the wilderness and they're kind of floating around. They don't have a land yet. And God is leading them through the person of Moses. And then fast forward, Joshua takes them into the land. They now have a land, but they don't really have a great leader. The next set of leaders are the book of Judges. It's a terrible book in the Old Testament. It shows what it's like to live without God as your actual king. Book of Judges. So Israel's in their land with sort of leaders that are godly leaders. Fast forward, 1 Kings, Chronicles, Samuel. The, king, the kingdom begins. David, Saul, Solomon. That's kind of the pinnacle of Old Testament uh, allure. That's when they lived in their land, they had their temple, they had their walls, and they had their Jewish king. And then as you read through the book of the kings, they mess it all up, they get taken away into captivity by Babylon, and then they're out of their land. They call it the time of exile. And now they're back in the book of Nehemiah. They're coming back into the land. And here's why it's important. This is a story about how the Jews learned to live in the land they chose without the leaders they chose. Most of us have chosen to live where we live. Very few of us would say the way we are being led by government and people and officials above us is what I would pick for how I'd be led. Most of us say, ah, no. This is what it's like to live as the people of God, where you want to be living with, but with somebody else in charge of you. That's why Nehemiah is important. God wants to shape us. How do we live in this time, this season, this place? This is not a Christian country with a Christian leader and Christian ethics and Christian morality all throughout the land. It's a country with a lot of Christian residue, which is great. But we are not living in the promised land. We're not living in the time where God was king. We're living in a time where we, the people of God, followers of Jesus in this room, are in a land with authority that is not God. How do you navigate that? You navigate it by going to books of Ezra and Nehemiah and studying them to the best of your ability. What is this book of Nehemiah going to be about? It's going to be about that. But what is this first chapter about? It's about the prayer. Here's my, the way I summarize what we're going to talk about this morning. Any great chapter of God's story will involve deep-rooted prayer from his people. Any great chapter. If Redemption North Mountain, if you're from another church, you're just, if you and your Christian family, wherever, any great chapter in your story that's going to be written, the way God defines greatness is going to be written because of there was deep-rooted prayer from the people of God. Period. There's no way around it. There's no like muscling our way into greatness in God's kingdom. It's through prayer. Here's my four as we walk through this passage. Here's where we're going to look. What do we need to be rooted in? Prayer has got to be rooted in reality. It's got to be rooted in emotion. It's got to be rooted in God's word. And it also has to be rooted in your and my calling. So that's what we're doing. Those four things. Prayer has got to be rooted in those four things. That's where we're going. But before we go, I just want to intro us into Nehemiah. How do we get here? So this book, like I said, contains a story. Over lunch yesterday, we're having hot dogs, and I'm kind of spending June trying to teach my kids the Ten Commandments. I'm like, all right, boys, 
the oldest, the wisest is not here. So I was like, this is, we'll see how this goes. Who gave us the Ten Commandments? Jude Patton Watt. Chris Paul. No. <laughs> Close. He's great, but no. Who gave us the Ten Commandments? Abraham Lincoln. No. Pastor's kid fell. Okay, let's rewind. Let's go back to the beginning. And a sort of discipleship tool for you and for your families, for your own heart, is kind of being able to go into the story of God and kind of know where you've come from up to that point and where it's going after that point. So as I'm trying to teach my kids about Moses and the Ten Commandments, it's good for them to kind of know, well, how did we get to Moses? What is God doing? Why, why just a bunch of rules dropped out of heaven? What's the point of all that? Well, it starts with this guy, Abraham. The nations had begun. The languages are different. Everybody's kind of spreading out. You've got uh, sort of different ethnicities, foods, clothing styles. And in that world that God looks at, he says, I'm going to choose one of these tribes. Abraham, you're my guy. And I'm going to place my blessing on you so that you might be a blessing. And as you trace the story of the Bible, it's about God being a blessing through this people group. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has these 12 sons. You remember the story? The youngest is the favorite. Joseph, he's the king. He's the Ozzy of the family. Everybody knows the parents love him. And the brothers know it, and they're convinced he's the favorite. So what do we do? We're going to kill him. Well, let's not kill him. Let's just kind of get rid of him. So they get rid of him. And Joseph gets sold into slavery. And then Roman's like, oh, yeah, I remember. And then he clicks. He's like, I know the story now. And then he starts telling the story. And then he was working for the king. And then he had a dream about these cows. One was really fat. One was really skinny. Which was just a good reminder for me, like, the way God meets us in his word meets people differently. And Roman's this visual, sort of artistic kid. He's like, I can picture him. I can picture him right now, Dad, this fat cow and this skinny cow. And it's all about the famine that's going to happen. And Joseph rises to prominence because he predicts a famine. And then fast forward, what comes after Joseph? The people of Egypt forget the Jewish God, the Jewish people, and then slavery ensues. And then Moses, this little baby, comes floating down a river. And the lady takes him up and starts to nurse him in the king's court. And then God, through Moses, rescues them out. He's not done. I'm going to bless this world through this people. They will not be destroyed. And Moses rises to prominence. And he gets to attack, go against Pharaoh. And the final plague, you remember the final plague? It's the Passover. It's what we celebrate in communion. It's the new version of the Passover. Is Pharaoh, you better let the Jewish people go. If you don't, I am going to kill the firstborn. And I'm walking, eating hot dogs, talking with the boys. Who would die in our household? <laughs> Eli Elijah. Yeah. And me, I'm a firstborn. And Aubrey. They said, let's walk down Altadena. Who else would die? Braden. It's like, Bella. Yeah. Well, they could live. What do they have to do? They have to put the blood on the doorpost. And what happens if they cover their door with the blood of an innocent lamb? Everybody lives. Isn't that a great story? Yes, if you by faith put your trust in him. And they survive, and they get out, and they cross the Red Sea. And they go in this land, and they try to build this land in the way that God wants them to build it. And they kind of always just stumble along. And they've got the law. They've got a temple where God's presence dwells. They've got a kingdom now. They've got walls of a city. They're a real people. We're a real person now. We are the people of God. In the Old Testament, it shows time and time again 
how they just keep messing it up. And their biggest mess up in one of the, in the Old Testament is the exile. Is when God kicks them out of their land into exile through the Babylonian leaders of the time. So I just want to, I want to nerd out just a little kind of timeline just to give us, here's, here's what we're talking about here. It's in real history. This like really happened. The Babylonian deportation. 605, the first Jewish exiles are deported to Babylon. That's the book of Daniel. Great book. That's what happens. They're taken out of their land. Next deportation to, out of Babylon or into Babylon, Ezekiel. That's 597 B.C. And then 586, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So Moses takes them out. You're going to be a people in this land with a temple, with rules, with a king. 586, that all gets demolished. That's where Nehemiah comes in. How does Nehemiah fit into the book? It's how do we come out of exile? How does God fix this problem that the Jews created? Here's where Ezra and Nehemiah comes in. 537, about 50,000 Jews returned to the land by Z and J. I just said Z and J. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Great names. Zerubbabel and Joshua are the first to take a group back into the land. Because why? The people of God are meant to live in the Holy Land. 516, the temple is complete. They rebuild the temple. It's in the book of Ezra. 458, Ezra, the scribe, the teacher, the pastor, the priest, the bishop, arrives 60 years later after the temple is complete. And then 445, Nehemiah approaches King Artaxerxes. 445 BC is where we find ourselves in this story here. 444, Nehemiah arrives and builds the wall, hence the rest of the book. What is the story of God? It is about a God being faithful to a people to live in a land, and the people are everything but faithful. What role does Nehemiah play for us in this room? There's a passage in Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy, a younger guy, and he says this. You've learned the sacred writings. There's no New Testament at this time, so he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. You've learned this. You know this. And they are able to make you wise for salvation. Translation, this book matters. Ezra matters. Nehemiah matters. This matters. It'll make you wise unto salvation. The people of God need his word. That's where we're at. So one thing, just if you, if you have an actual real like paper Bible, not right next to it to the left is this book of Ezra. Just a little side note. One of our professors was making fun of us because if you're like a legit scholar like Jimmy Curley or somebody who's actually studying knows their stuff, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Jewish tradition is one book. So just a little asterisk. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. We are kind of lazy at redemption. We're like, we're just going to do half. We didn't really do the homework beforehand, and this professor that a lot of us have had in seminary is like, I can't believe you guys separated Ezra and Nehemiah. We're like, all right, go in, chill out, man. We, got, we screwed up. We can't do, we got, everything's printed. We got the graphics. The graphic says Nehemiah. It is what it is. <laughs> but here's how the Jews would read it. 
Ezra is the first two chapters. Nehemiah has the third chapter and then the fourth sort of summary point. Here's the, the first part of Ezra is this, is that Zerubbabel guy, bringing the people back. Zerubbabel means planted in Babylon. Zerubbabel, we've been planted in Babylon, but now we've been uprooted and we're going back. So the first part of Ezra, let's bring the people back into the Holy Land. The second part is Ezra shows up, but now these people need worship. They need a church service. They need a building. They need somebody to stand up and teach the word of God. They need to be shaped. That's Ezra. And each of those sections ends with very sort of disappointing, like, gosh, they still don't quite get it. And then Nehemiah, the very beginning of Nehemiah is this. Nehemiah gets this word that the walls are destroyed. He wants to come back. The temple's good. The walls around Jerusalem are destroyed. He comes back in this third movement of fixing the walls. So most of our study is going to be looking at Nehemiah coming back to fix the walls of the city. And then it ends with all these reforms and like the Israelites saying, yeah, we're going to do better this time. And then 13 is like, you still need something better. His name's Jesus. He's coming. But for now, this is what you guys have. So Ezra and Nehemiah is this one story. We are just looking sort of at the third chapter here of this Ezra and Nehemiah combo in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this, and we're just going to see this guy pray. And we're going to learn some stuff about prayer. So here's the first thing I said about prayer. Prayer is rooted in reality. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. That was a really long intro. We won't intro every week. But the Bible's a big book. It's hard to get grasped sometimes. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read down through verse 3. Uh, let's read verse 2. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, all that stuff I was just talking about, and concerning... Jerusalem. What do I mean by prayer is rooted in reality? Actual, real people. Nehemiah was a real person. His name means God comforts. He was in a real place this month of Chislev. That's November, December, according to the Jewish timetable. A real man in a real place in what year? In the 20th year of the reign of this king, King Artaxerxes, which is the year 445 BC. Where at? In Susa which is the sort of winter home for Persian kings. It's like Camp David. So Nehemiah, a real person, in 445 BC, is at Camp David with the king of Persia, who is the ruling empire of this time. This is rooted in reality. Matter of fact, like a, this is the close to an anime movie that I've ever liked, the movie 300 about Sparta. Great movie. It's rated R for violence, mainly. That, that movie happened 30 years prior to this. 300, Sparta, fighting the Persian king, is a real thing that happened shortly before Nehemiah did his thing. And you're like, why does that even matter? Because a lot of religious ideologies try to sort of get out of reality and get us to some sort of like, we're above all this down here. And Christianity is always taking us and rooting us right here in the dust. We're a people of the dust, and that's important, and that's good. Why? Because our prayers come from the dust. I was reading a tweet the other day from a guy saying, here's how I left atheism and came to Christianity. And the number one reason that he left atheism was this. He said, Christianity is the only historically-based transcendent belief system. 
historically based in the dust, transcendent, but it's beyond this world. The Bible is not a collection of theories or idealized tales that make the central characters into glossy heroes. It is in large part, I love this, a gritty, unglamorous, and often distasteful retelling of historical facts. The Bible smacks of realistic fact, not idealistic fiction. Prayer comes from reality, from history, from the dust, from right where we are. Nehemiah is going to pray out of a certain circumstance, just like you and I are. Just like as Joe's leading us in prayer this morning. We're all coming from certain circumstances. Prayer is rooted in reality. And who is this Nehemiah guy as we get to know him? This, this guy that shows up in the scene in this book. Like I said, his name means God comforts. I'll say this though. He gets written down because he steps into God's story by faith. He didn't have to. He had a cush life. But he steps into this. And just... If you're in sort of leadership, Nehemiah is always kind of used and held up as a Bible, that, a Bible story that you can go to for leadership principles, and I think that's true and well. That's not what we're going to do over this summer together. But he is a great, godly, faithful guy. He's humble. He's compassionate. He's bold. There's all these moments where he's ready to fight. He's organized. He builds this wall in like 54 days. <laughs> He has integrity. He's quick to action. So many Christians, you know, I, I'm going to pray about that, which means no, but I don't have the guts to say no, so I'm just going to say I'm going to pray about it. He has quick to action. Just overall, Nehemiah is this godly guy. And what report does he receive as he asks, hey, what's going on with Jerusalem? What's going on with the walls? Let's read in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. We'll jump ahead, but verse four, he weeps based off the news. Why is he weeping? If they were taken into captivity by Babylon years, decades, decades, decades ago, and all that stuff was destroyed decades ago, and he gets this fresh report, yes, it's destroyed and the walls are burning. Why is he so distraught? It'd be like if somebody this year went away to China and lost all contact with Arizona. They come back four years later. And the first question, you know what they're going to ask, right? How are the suns doing? If someone says, oh, the suns are terrible, you'd be distraught. Why? Because they're in the second round of the playoffs right now. And Nehemiah is looking at a place that's being rebuilt. Ezra has come back. Zerubbabel has come back. They have come back. They have started this project. And he gets this fresh report and he says, it's in shambles. The wall is destroyed by fire. Almost to say like the people of God have showed back up in the place of God and they've even made it worse. Disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement. Part of why we're doing Nehemiah is he speaks to a moment that is full of discouragement. And a few key redemption pastors says, I think we need to do Nehemiah after the year and a half we've had. Why? Because we're all so great and we're all ready to do building campaigns because just life is killing it here in the church. No, because we're like, 
been rough. It's been hard. Like harder than I expected. The amount of people that I've talked to that are like healthy, prosperous, flourishing in every way you'd want to be flourishing. And I kind of ask how they're doing. They're like, I'm just kind of ready for it to be over. And like, I just, I'm sick of life. Like anybody there like, I'm just done. Why? Nehemiah's like, I'm, I'm done. What's he disappointed about? The people of God keep screwing up. But particularly, this story is going to be kind of traced around this one thematic thing. It says here, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then he weeps. So Nehemiah thinks about Jerusalem. He pictures the walls being burned down, almost like within the last few years probably, and he weeps. We got to do some business with this because the wall carries a lot of sort of weighted tension, at least in America. Build a wall, don't build a wall. If you build a wall, you're this. If you don't want the wall, you're this. A wall represents something currently in our political. What did the wall represent in Nehemiah's day and age? Did it mean the same thing that certain political, like just keeping the outsider out? And there's not like a clear, there's not a verse you can turn to. Wall 2.13, well, the wall is for this. You kind of have to trace the story. And the reality is at the end of it all, when heaven comes down to earth, there's still a wall. Revelation 21 says this. This is the Apostle John. has a vision. God's giving him the vision of what the world's going to look like down the road. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city, it had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The wall is like this key thing God has around his people. Why? What does the wall represent? As I've studied and just prayed and kind of sought counsel and talked to other leaders and read, two things come to mind. The wall keeps out danger, but the wall also creates a distinctiveness to the people of God. Danger in terms of the enemies of God are always the issue because they start to intermingle with them and their gods. The wall is a way to say there is danger outside of here. And the wall also is a way to distinctly mark off, here is the people of God. We are unique. Why is that important? Israel is right smack dab in the center of the world. And it's always been surrounded by tribes and nations and empires. And it's this people of God, this tiny little group of undeserving grace recipients right there in the middle of where all the action in the world is happening. How do I know they're the people of God? This little wall represents we are here in the middle. But we're not about what's out there. We're not heaven bound. We're not trying to get out of this. We're going to be right smack dab in the middle, but we are going to be different. We're going to be distinct. And we're going to keep the dangers from out there out of here. 
And the dangers aren't necessarily what you think of as you think about political. The dangers of unholiness, of lackadaisicalness, of sin, of taking shortcuts with God. He is distraught because the wall is torn down. The distinction of Israel is no more. Prayer is always rooted in reality. Nehemiah's reality is the glory of Jerusalem is over with, seemingly. The walls are done, and he's just making sense of what's before him. What's the next thing we see that he roots himself in prayer? Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer is rooted in reality. You can't like pray yourself out of your circumstances. You are in your circumstances. And prayer is also rooted in emotion. We are not supposed to just be brains on a stick. We're not analytical, logical creatures primarily. That is part of it. But we're also feelings people. We're gut people. We're supposed to pray out of who we are. All of our emotions. And it says Nehemiah sat down and he wept for days. Some of the highlights of me as a dad, which are not a lot, but when I think, you know what, I think I'm doing this all right, is when I can see my kid crying, like just, <laughs> and just let him be. Because there's an element of like, the world and all the unhealthy coping mechanisms are going to kick in, and he's gonna, they're going to stifle their emotions in all these unhealthy, unchristlike ways. But there's something real and raw about the emotions of a young kid that's good. Why? Because emotions are good. Why? Because God is an emotional being. We are made in his image. Emotions are good. And we pray out of our emotions. We don't set our emotions aside and say, all right, now the serious holy stuff happens. I get those tears out of here. Get that whining and whimpering. All that aside. Now it's game time with the Lord. No, you pray out of your emotional being. And emotions are a little bit like what speed you like to drive. So like on the 51, I'm like a 70 to 75. I don't know what the speed limit is. I think clo close to that, something like that. But if you're driving faster than me, you're out of control. If you're driving slower than me, you, are, you need to get off the road and have your license revoked. <laughs> emotions, I'm this emotional. If you have more emotions than me, you are too emotional. If you have less emotions than me, you are stoic. You're a robot. Get it together. That's kind of how all of us function. What's she like? She's emotional, which just means she's more emotional than me. What's he like? He has no emotions. It just means he has less emotions than you. The reality is we all have emotions. We just acknowledge like where we at on the spectrum. Like I have three. Happy, hungry, <laughs> angry. Check, check, check. Aubrey has like multiple colors and layers and it's like pastel of like, what is going on here? You are too emotional. I don't say that. <laughs> but I just want from God's word, we just left the gospel of John. Jesus was emotional. Nehemiah sits down and weeps. Not just like in a, like a, because the month that it starts with is November, December. And then in chapter two, by the time it wraps up and he goes to the king, it's in April. So it's like a four or five month period where this is stewing in him. And it's, brooding in him and he's like ah. motions are good 
I wrote down here, what have you been praying for and feeling deeply about for the last four months? Well, work's stressful. Okay, that's not what I asked. Like, I, I had an epiphany this morning. I was thinking about Ozzy. I'm like, man, I have not prayed. For, I just take him for granted. There's no, like, I just enjoy him as a cute little character. But there's not, like, a deep emotional, like, praying towards his future, praying for what I want him to become. And I was just convicted, like, my emotions aren't being used properly, I think, in this situation. But what are you praying for? Part of what I think the church battles with right now is just a general apathy. Like a mundane boredom with life. Because life is boring if you don't have the story of God at the center. There's a guy who's taken the screw tape letters, which is C.S. Lewis' famous writing, and he's written glob drop letters, which is a continuation. And one of his little chapters is about men in particular in their boredom. And he says this. So, backdrop, it's a demon writing to a younger demon, hypothetically, teaching young demons how to be better demons with the people on earth. Older demon says, We love to capture children, women, and those with the old bones in nothing. But of all the souls, nothing wets our pernicious palate quite like the webbing for their men. And he calls the men aboard in this, men of nothing. Small men nibbling on snacks, never asking questions, nor breaking from their modest comforts, never lifting their voices, never saying anything worthwhile to their neighbors. Mummified men of blunted ambitions and stale joys who never rise to anything above themselves and bear no weight to keep them from blowing away. These men are hell's delicacies. Is that anyone in this room? Men of nothing. Women of nothing. Nothing being you're just taken away by the triviality offered in this world. Like when has your emotional reserve been spent towards the things of God, the people of God, the things that break God's heart? We sing that song, Hosanna, break my heart for what breaks yours is the line in there. When has our heart been broken for the things of God? Nehemiah's heart is broken. He weeps. If you need help with this, I think the most helpful way, at least according to God's word, is to get in the book of Psalms and start reading it. And about every second or third Psalm, you're going to come across one that's a lament, which is crying out to God on behalf of stuff happening here. And if there's nothing in your life to be lamenting, you take that moment and you start to think about people, situations, neighborhoods, groups around you that need to be lamented for and lament and grow this muscle of emotion spent in the right direction like Nehemiah. Prayer is rooted in our emotions. It's not around it. We're not a brain-only praying people. We pray from our heart. We don't just pray from our heart, though. We pray out of the Word. Here's the third one. Prayer is rooted in the Word of God. Let's read verse 5 through 11 together. This is where he actually prays now. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not 
the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, let your be, ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now this is a process, but are your prayers saturated in the word of God? As you come to Christ day one, you're going to pray very simple, rudimentary prayers, and God loves it. But as you grow in your faith, part of discipleship is your prayer sounds more and more like scripture, comes more and more in line with scripture. And this man, Nehemiah, prays, and it is in line with scripture. He praises God. I wrote down some things. He praises the names of God. He says, O Lord God of heaven, O Lord is Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God for the Old Testament Israel. What's interesting, God of heaven is sort of the generic name of God. It's what the Persians called their God. So Daniel, or, uh, Nehemiah is praying, covenant Israelite faithful God and God of heaven, generic God over all things. But he's praying the names of God, sort of ones that he's inherited from the culture he's been in, but also the ones deep rooted to his people. O Lord God of heaven. I wrote down this question. How do you address God in your prayers? Oh, what is it? For me, I don't know where this came to be, but I use Lord a lot. And my wife does too. Lord, Lord. Or I use Father. But it's just a good like, how do I address God? You don't have to get all churchy and over the top out of the gate, but how you address someone matters. Aubrey, a lot of times, will say, you haven't actually said my name in a long time. You just, you're using babe and sweetie and all the, but my name's Aubrey. God has some names he's given us. How do you address him as you're praying? Verse 5, he prays into the character of God. It says, who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love. That steadfast love word is hesed. Never-ending, unbreakable, unshakable love. It's the love we all talk about when we get married on day one. It's the love that none of us can really fulfill like we said we could on that day. Only Jesus has Hesed love. You are the covenant, faithful, all-loving God. He prays into the works and promises of God. Verse 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. He says, remember what you told Moses. It's interesting. Deuteronomy 28 says this exact verse. I will scatter you among the peoples if you're unfaithful. He's quoting an exact verse out of Deuteronomy 28. And then in the very next line, he's quoting a verse out of Deuteronomy 30. If you return to me, I will put you back in the place where he was quoting scripture as he prays. And he's quoting the works and promises of God as he prays. How much has the word of God shaped your prayer life? Again, it's not, we're all on this process. We're all on this journey. But as you think back and just honestly sit with yourself, like, my prayers are still pretty much the same they were years ago, which is asking for more money. I'm stressed at work. Fix my kids. Tell my spouse to leave me alone. Nehemiah prays into the promises of God out of the book of Deuteronomy. He just kind of rattles them off. He doesn't just ask for God to do amazing things and keep his promise low. Verse 6 and 7, he confesses. 
Let's read that confession together. It's just fascinating. Verse 6 says, Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. This is the most convicting part for me. Because as I think about, he's confessing on behalf of the people of God. So translation to today, he's confessing on behalf of the church. He's confessing a corporate prayer about the church and he's implicating himself saying, I'm also included in this. And I think back this last year, year and a half, and I think about what are the sins of the church? Not of a political party, not of a government official, not of whoever we think is the problem, but we as the people of God, what are our sins we've contributed to this mess? I had to confess disunity, gossip, slander. I don't know what to call this just a general, I want to beat people up that have wronged me, whatever that is. I and my father's house, we've sinned. No good prayer comes without good, deep, heart, real confession. And not like vague confession. He, he's not vague. The commandments, the statutes, the ordinances, that covers everything of the Old Testament. All the laws that integrate uh, them and God with each other and the ordinances, how they should do festivals. We've screwed it all up, he says. It's specific, I and my father's house. The Watts have sinned, Josh has sinned, I have sinned. And again, as the church, we're not talking about non-church people. I feel like in this country, we've, we've kind of blended too many things. Church with sort of conservatism and liberalism, and they all get mixed together. No, 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 we're just talking about the people of God. What do we need to confess? And there's a lot. And then finally, verse 11, he says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, speaking of himself, and to the prayer of your servant, speaking of Israel, who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. I love how he lands the plane. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He lands and he says, I want success. He prays, God, you are amazing. You are great. You're the covenant, steadfast, love-keeping God. You are amazing. You've promised. Deuteronomy says this. Deuteronomy says this. You are and we have sinned. I've sinned. My father sinned. We've all sinned. And then he lands the plane with, here's what I want. I want success today in the sight of this man. We'll meet him next week, King Artaxerxes. But his prayer is rooted in the word of God. And then finally, prayer needs to be rooted in this. Let's see the last verse there. At the end of verse 11, he kind of gives his identity. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Prayer must also be rooted in your, our, calling. What do I mean by that? He's not praying some reality that he's not a part of. He's praying as the cupbearer of the king. Cupbearer is just the person who would test the wine before the king to make sure it wasn't poisonous. So it was a sort of esteem, but also like kind of dangerous. But he's praying as the cupbearer to the king. That's his calling in this poem. What is your calling? We just finished this class. We taught out of our house, and that last sort of couple weeks ended on calling. What's calling? 
It can kind of get, like, what's your calling? Like, I am called to, it's an, why has God placed you on this earth? I am called to, I am called to, I talk to a lot of Christians, a lot of people to say this, I am just a, as a way to say, there's probably a better calling, but I'm just a, and I just want to end, God made your calling. Two things specifically. Your calling is a spiritual calling, even if you're not in front of people teaching a Bible. Your calling matters to God. How do I, even biblically, how do I say that based out of the text we're in? I'll tell you how. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. What is Ezra? He is a priest. He is the guy who stands up and teaches the word of God. What is Nehemiah? He is a general contractor. And how do the people of God become the people of God in this day and age, in this time period? With the man teaching the Bible... And the men and women, general contracting. And they go together. They are two chapters of the same book. How do the Jewish people become the Jewish people in this day and age? Both callings. Spiritual and if non-spiritual, although I don't use those terms. Why? Because Nehemiah was a general contractor. Our callings matter. All of life is all for Jesus. Here's the other thing. And this is just as we have more and more younger people you know, 20s, I don't know what young is, younger than me. Your calling is always smaller than your potential. This is just one of the pastoral things that's already hitting this church. You meet with 20-something-year-olds, what do you want to do with your life? And it's like, like, well, I'm too tired to listen to all this. I need a nap. But a reality that you have to come to to come to maturity as a Christian is all your potential in life is not the goal. It's your calling. And your potential always is far bigger and grander and more glorious than what your calling is. Nehemiah, I was a cupbearer to the king. I was a stay-at-home mom who then was a stay-at-home grandma. That's the reality you pray out of. That's your calling. I was a general contractor. I was a and there's always more potential you could chase in this world. The amount of young people I talk to that here's what they want to do with their life. Have a lot of kids, have a lot of money, travel endlessly, bring endless glory to God, have all the friends in the world, travel, have lots of money, travel, be really holy and spiritual, travel, be really holy. It's like, that's not how it works. I was a cupbearer to the king, which has a limitedness to it. I don't have much. But I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm, there's my, my one friend's a civil engineer. He does a lot of the road work. 101, all that messed upness, that was his deal. <laughs> but he has stayed at this level at his company for as long as I've known, 15 years. And every opportunity to do this, he says no to. Why? Because he's got three little kids at home. He's like, I just... Part of Christian maturity is figuring out, okay, what's my calling? And then having the wisdom, discernment, courage to say no to the things that don't fit within your calling. And at the end of the day, you can say, I was just a cupbearer to the king. And that was sufficient. Here's one tool on reading the Bible, just as, especially as you go to the Old Testament. How is reading this as a Christian better for us? What makes it better to be a Christian as we read Nehemiah? And here's one thing that just stands out as I was studying this. Nehemiah says this, I was a cup bearer to the king. That was his 
claim to authority and sovereignty and power. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. What are we as children of God in this room as we get to think about our calling? I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm this. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm this. I'm a barista. We are also little brothers and little sisters of the king of the universe, King Jesus. We are not just cupbearers of the king. We don't get to sort of just claim this little limited hour. We're just, we get the king of the universe, and he's on our side. He's here with us. He's here with you. If you are trusting him by faith, it is better to be a Christian than to be a Jew during this time. Why? Because we get the king of the universe, and he's with us, and he's for us. Something fascinating about Nehemiah, and we'll end. There are no miracles in this book. The book of Acts records 40 miracles. 39 of them happen outside the church walls. Nehemiah, there are zero miracles. All that happens that's important and significant and consequential happens because of relationships with key officials where they kind of change their tune and they say, you know what, I'll give you this that you need. That's the Christian life, is we trust that we have the king on our side. And we are going to pray deeply. We're going to stay rooted in reality. We're not going to fake it. We're not going to put a smile on our face if we don't need to put a smile on our face. We're going to pray God-centered prayers out of his word. And we're going to pray out of our calling. As individuals and as the people of God here at this church for this time and this moment and this season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for Nehemiah. The timeliness of just what it means to be your follower. That in a world where others are in control and Christianity and following Jesus gets pushed more and more into the margins and we're trying to make sense of what it means to be faithful, God, we get to watch this man pray deeply, pray faithfully, trust you through his prayer. And we get to watch this book unfold as you work through him and through those around him. So God, grow our faith. Make us wise unto salvation, as Paul tells Timothy through these sacred writings. God, let us be a praying people. Let us truly believe that anything significant and important, earth-shattering, grand, glorious, whatever words we want to use, anything that matters that we want to be a part of and do and shape has got to be rooted in prayer. So Father, help us to be more of a praying people than we are now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.